Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Uh, today is a live show. This is your global affairs show. Happens every week at this time, every Thursday at noon. And on today's show, we're going to be speaking about the Anti-Defamation League and their um, battle with Elon Musk uh, that has erupted over the weekend, um, last weekend. Lots of um, exchange of words and threats of lawsuits. What's behind it all? And who is exactly the Anti-Defamation League that claims to be um, a civil rights organization and um, anti-bias organization? We're going to dig into that deeper with our special guest and possibly some of your phone calls. This is Ahmed and Samar on True Talk. We'll be right back after this short music break.
Welcome back to Truth Talk on WMNF 88.5. This is Summer's uh, favorite musician, Amri Dieb, isn't it, Summer? Not at all. <laughs> oh, I, I played it because I thought you, you really liked him. One of the most famous yeah. Arab singers. Yeah, he reinvented himself. Amazing uh, young man. Not young anymore. I think he's 60. Well, 60 is very young, but he doesn't look 60. Okay, well, he's oh. a famous... Um, uh, yeah. Egyptian pop singer, I guess, mm -hmm. and he's still, he's been, he's, how long has he been ma making music? I think since before I left Egypt, uh, I think since maybe 79. Wow, so that's yeah. a very long career. Yeah, I think, no, no, uh, sorry, uh, in the 80s. Like mm. when I was in college in the 80s, I would say 84, 80, maybe Okay, like so that. I mean, still like uh, yeah. almost 40, time. about 40 years. But he revolutionized music in Egypt and the Arab world because he was doing uh, what became known like uh, what they call it. Like when you have dancers and video and choreography. Like a and, music video? Uh, like a music video and outdoors, uh, by the beach, by the water. Uh, he really, um, and the quick beat, and the fast music, and the fast beat. This Very is good. not uh, native to, um, I guess, uh, Middle Eastern or Egyptian music. It's more of a slower beat, and yeah. or historically. A song takes an hour, like oh. Al-Kalfim, Abdul Halim, and right. even... Uh, ones from the Gulf region, uh, it would be an hour song. And if people are excited, the audience, it can go to an hour and a half. So for Amri Diab to do a song from beginning to end in three, four minutes was was really revolutionary. Yeah, well, today's show is not about music or Amri Diab as much as you would like it to be because you always want to do music shows during our True Talk, which is actually a global affairs show. It's your place for international um, politics, and especially with the Middle East and the Muslim world. And on today's show, today we're diving, uh, you know, headfirst into the latest developments surround, surrounding the Anti-Defamation League, also known as the ADL. In a shocking turn of events, Summer, which you've also tweeted about it on Twitter, Elon Musk, the owner of the company of X, formerly known as Twitter, has uh, basically, you know, is giving them an ultimatum or, you know, making a public um, poll. He's threatened to file a lawsuit against the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, accusing them of defaming his platform and causing a substantial loss in advertising revenue. I mean, you know, it's ironic that the company or the organization that calls itself the Anti-Defamation League is actually being sued for defamation or threatening, threatened to be sued for defamation. It wouldn't be the first time, by the way. Um, Musk is claiming the ADL has falsely accused Twitter X um, and himself of being anti-Semitic. And he's pointing to a significant drop in advertising revenue, around 60%. He says, Musk asserts that according to feedback from advertisers, the ADL shoulders much of the blame for the financial hit. Um, the drama doesn't end there. 
since Musk took the reins of X, the ADL has raised concerns about a surge of anti-Semitic posts on the platform. A recent study even found an increase in new accounts posting anti-Semitic content. Um, but Musk is basically saying that he's not targeting uh, the ADL specifically. He's just making it available, you know, less regulations. But one of the things that I found interesting in one of the tweets that he said somewhere was that um, in one of his tweets, he's basically saying that the ADL um, will not agree to, uh, you know, will not stop calling him anti-Semitic or Twitter being a place for anti-Semitism and asking advertisers to stop advertising until Twitter or X and Elon Musk agree to shadow ban and suspend user accounts or tweets that they don't like. So they're, in a way, they're trying to police the free speech on Twitter. And um, that's his claim. Um, our guest is going to be joining us soon. But what was your initial reaction when you saw that summer? And then we'll get to the guest. It started at night a couple of nights ago, and I was wondering why ban the ADL is uh, is trending on Twitter. Um, you're, you almost can never see um, a trend going on about a Jewish organization. And in the back of my mind, I know that it has to do, I mean, in, in spite of what I think of it, but in the general public, they think it's an organization that cares about anti-Semitism and tries to uh, fight anti-Semitism and, um, you know, acts of hate uh, that are directed toward the Jewish people. So I was wondering, how could this be trending? And then all of a sudden, I find Elon Musk is jumping uh, on the wagon. And there was a space in Twitter where more than three, 4,000 people are talking about the ADL. And I tried to figure out what is going on. Um, and then every now and then, Elon will either highlight somebody's email, uh, sorry, a, a tweet, or, uh, or for instance, he uh, would post an article, like there was one in Newsweek by uh, some American Jewish uh, lawyer, or a documentary by an Israeli about defamation and the art of defamation or the policies of defamation. So I thought, okay, this is really going uh, so far. So I started writing about it, Ahmed, in the Arabic and translating it into the Arabic. And of course, by the time uh, I slept and woke up next day, it was all over the uh, Twitter in the Arabic uh, language because it was happening while they were sleeping. I don't think people in the Arab world really understand what is the ADL. They don't know the difference between different organizations. But this is why you and I uh, have the honor of talking to Imamia Gelman, who is a teacher at the Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, she's also writing a book on the Anti-Defamation uh, League, which I find it uh, quite interesting. She has a lot of uh, knowledge and background. And uh, she wrote maybe 2019, very, very interesting, long, long article uh, in the Boston Review. And it's called The, the Anti-Defamation League is Not What It Seems. Under the guise of fighting hate speech, the ADL has a long history of wielding its moral authority to attack Arabs, Blacks, and queers. And this, again, was published in May 2019. So I'm very, very happy to say that Imamia 
uh, is with us on True Talk. Good morning, uh, Imamia. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's, it's afternoon a- now, summer. Oh, okay. <laughs> just <laughs> we just just changed. made it. Okay, so Imamia, uh, you are actually writing a book on the ADL. That's the abbreviation of it. Uh, why that interest in this organization? And while you're telling that us that, maybe you can tell us how old is it? Like, has it been there for a long time in the U.S.? Sure, I'm. I'm happy to talk about the history of it. And I would say almost nobody in the United States and maybe anywhere. Um, has really knows the history. It's one of those organizations that is really present and ubiquitous in everyday life. And its existence is just presumed. Um, almost nobody kind of picks up the the lid and looks inside and particularly not in situations like the one that we have now where the media are reporting on the ADL and on this, you know, this sort of staged fight as it were. Um, So the history of the ADL is actually really important. Um, I didn't know it myself when I started working on this project 15 years ago. Um, So just to say a little bit about what the ADL is in the present, it's a very difficult thing to pin down actually because it's it's a very prominent organization and it appears in lots of different spaces. It's on the news all the time, anything that um, any instance that happens that has to do with white nationalism or anti-Semitism or um, Jewish politics or Israel politics um, or racist vandalism or free speech, right? Like almost anything that happens can end up with um, Anti-Defamation League pundits being on cable television, doing their commentary and trying to interpret it for the public. And media organizations rely very heavily on the ADL. And so do elected officials and public policy makers and schools because it's such a um, unquestioned and central part of U.S. life. It's a political organization. Um, it's, it, it's history, which it points to a lot, um, is in the civil rights arena. So for it, the, the Anti-Defamation League is forever sort of posting pictures online of, you know, the March on um, March and Selma um, that's, you know, sort of seminal to the civil rights movement, talking about its sort of past history of supporting Black civil rights, um, about uh, its long history of school programming on anti-bias, et cetera. That is only a small part of what it does. It is major in those places, but it's also a Zionist organization. And that's not incidental to what it does. Zionism and support for Israel and explaining and interpreting Israel to Americans so that they support it and so that the U.S. government can support it is a part of its mission and has been since the 50s. But that work has taken place kind of out of the, often out of the spotlight, not always, but often out of the spotlight. And instead, what we kind of publicly know about the ADL is that it is a watchdog. Um, it sort of points out when the media have, um, you know, since said something anti-Semitic or racist or wrong, it's a litigator. So the ADL um, in the past more than the present has litigated cases that we actually do you know, that we that produce rights that we actually need and use. So anti-discrimination in housing and employment. Um, 
but and certainly hate crimes law is the project of the ADL. The the problem is that we very easily equate being involved in civil rights work to mean anti-racist and progressive. And that's not that's not true. I mean, the civil rights group label is a tough one because it doesn't really take any kind of progressive politics to be a civil rights group. It just means that you're making claims about how the constitution is supposed to protect people. And certainly with the ADL, they've um, done that. They've uh, asserted anti-discrimination rules on the basis of race. Um, and they've also, ad in some cases, advocated against uh, against the anti-discrimination measures that communities of color have wanted. For example, the ADL was um, opposed to affirmative action for a long time. Mm -hmm. But um, we, yeah, uh, go I was, um, we just give that term, we give the term civil rights, all the meaning and the of the civil rights movement. Like we have the, you know, the civil rights movement is sacred in American life, even though it's also, you know, even though this is an incredibly racist country, we still have these ideas about ourselves that come from the civil rights movement. And when the when the ADL refers itself back to the civil rights movement, it claims moral authority and ends up speaking on behalf of anti-racist struggles, even though it's not considered an ally at all by many anti-racist organizations, including Jewish ones. Okay, what kind of structure it has? Is it a nonprofit? Is it designated as a nonprofit organization? Can they raise funds? Uh, do they have a big budget? Do they have a big staff? Do they have offices all over the U.S.? Do they oh, have gonna... Yes, it does have. Um, it does have a very large budget, and you're going to make me look up the budget right now. <laughs> um, I, I think in your article you mentioned something in the millions, like we're yes. Oh, for sure, it's a very massive. Thirty-five, I think you wrote that was in 2019. Right. And I've heard, I mean, you know, it's their, their uh, budget is enormous. Um, and they also, they have, um, they have grants to do stuff. They get, they ha they get grants from the government. They get contracts um, at times to like develop curriculum or work with schools, et cetera. They, um, they have investments that probably produce um, money. It's, it's uh, on the one hand, they don't try to hide their financial statements. They're, they're available online, which is, um, as they're supposed to be, but also it's kind of hard to track how much is ac is actually going in there. So, for example, right now I'm looking at their uh, at their finances from 2021, and it's something like you know, is it 222 million dollars, 240 million dollars? I don't know. It'll take me a minute to figure yeah. out. Anyway, massive. And mm -hmm. they, yes, they have offices all over the United States, regional offices um, that work with government, local governments, and very frequently with schools. They are also involved in um, in federal legislative and advocacy space. And it's really difficult. That's one of the things that makes it so difficult for organizations who are doing grassroots work or who are trying to be part, you know, trying to make a dent to say no to the ADL. Like if the ADL, for example, the ADL's campaign to get Twitter uh, advertisers to mm -hmm. stop advertising on Twitter, which was a campaign that was run with several other groups, including Color of Change, and I um, I can't remember who else. So, you know, some of those organizations know full well that the Anti-Defamation League attacks anti-racist movements and is not a progressive organization. Um, but imagine 
if you have the um, the opportunity to use this platform to advance one goal, like maybe they're going to, you know, undermine your some other goals, but you have the one this one possibility of a platform to work with the ADL, like it's it takes a lot of backbone to say no to that. The result of that of the ADL's um, very large presence and its credibility with lawmakers and um, and local officials has been that it keeps being able to accrue um, like partnerships and relationships with anti-racist organizations or communities of color, and especially with more right-wing organizations within our communities. Like we don't all, you know, not all organizations from communities of color, from Jewish community or whatever are particularly progressive. So of course the ADL can, can recruit them. And then it, it has been able to turn that into a claim that it works you know, across communities and that it's advocating for everybody. And this claim is then magnified in the in um, in the media, for example, in the present. Right now, I, I just looked up on Google, I searched for Musk and ADL, and the top stories suggest that the ADL is um, being attacked because it's woke. Yeah. Exactly. It's anti-defamation league becomes the latest anti-woke target after Musk's whatever. So it gets boiled down very easily because the ADL is able to, to gesture to all of these projects that it does with organizations that are, you know, far to the left of it. Um, and then to to kind of camp out on that, um, that idea that it's progressive, that it's inclusive, and it makes a lot of hay out of that. And it's really, you know, the, the media who are reporting on it and often elected officials who are uh, treating it with credibility don't know that there are intense critiques and and um, and some outreaches even within the communities that they that the ADL claims to support about working with the ADL. So they continue to boost it, and it's a cycle. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to Maima Gelman. I hope uh, I'm pronouncing it correctly. She's a professor at Sarah Lawrence College. How do you say it? Emea Gelman. Emea. Okay, Emea Gelman. Sorry. No so um, when you were talking, I, I did also look at the budget. So um, their total assets is $238 um, million as of 2021. And they receive about uh, $86 million every year around 80, 80 something million a year in total revenue, including $62 million in direct contributions. Um, they have an endowment, they're a very wealthy uh, organization. And um, when you were talking about, um, you know, how they gain legitimacy by partnering with so-called, um, you know, anti-racist organizations or civil rights organizations, um, I mean, I have a history. I, I used to work for an organization called CARE. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, the Council mm -hmm. on American Islamic Relations. And that was like um, 20 years ago or, yeah, I left in 2008. And I remember, you know, the ADL will regularly attack CARE. And CARE is like the the prominent Muslim civil rights organization, especially after 9-11. They dealt with a lot of the... Um, you know, the targeting of Muslims, and that was the group that was being specifically targeted after 9-11. But instead of, you know, supporting organizations like CARE, they actually had like a whole dossier on CARE, and I think they still do. 
if I look it up on their website, that basically care is a sympathizer with terrorists. Um, so just our history uh, as Muslims and in my work, in my previous work in civil rights, working on behalf of Muslim rights, the ADL was always an opponent, even when it came to the mosque in New York City, which, you know, they also kind of called it the ground zero mosque. They opposed to that. Just about everything that Muslim rights wanted or to enhance Muslim rights, the ADL was on the other side, especially because they see things from the prism um, of Israel. But um, I guess my question to you, um, one, you know, commenting on what I said, but also, it, you know, the ADLs, because you mentioned this before in, in, your, in an article in 2019, ADLs historical efforts to suppress Arab American political organizing. It can also add Muslim American um engage and uh political engagement uh in the united states are they are there any recent developments in that are they continuing to do that um and and how is it that they continue to get away with it over and over it's such a good question the the answer is yes of course um they have they are carrying on um i want to be real clear though that they so the adl has targeted Arab American politics, and as you say, and Muslim American politics very specifically because of its, partly because of its interest in supporting Israel and opposing any narratives that are, you know, that might get sort of publicized or advanced that reframe what's happening in Palestine as colonialism, as violence, um, as ethnic cleansing. But that's not where they stop. So mm. they, um, the origins of the ADL's interest in Zionism even are that they, even before that, were uh, sort of Western-centric um, pro-settler organization that was created by, you know, as every organization is a, a product of its time. The Anti-Defamation League started in um, 1913 at a time when there was a conflict of culture and politics between the existing group of Jewish immigrants, um, many of whom had were first and second or second and third generation at that point, who had come from Germany and were middle class and, and pro-capitalist and had assimilated and were largely white. They viewed Jewish just as a religion, not as a... Mm -hmm. um, and they were very invested in the project of settlement of the United States as a white settler colonial state. Like, that's not... It sounds controversial now because now we think settler colonialism is bad, right? But <laughs> at the time, that's just what they were doing. They were just like a white organization that happened to be Jewish and they were defending the state and and they opposed anti-Semitism. I mean, they were formed to oppose anti-Semitism, but their conception of what was happening, like what was producing anti-Semitism was that these like leftist, dirty, not quite white Russian Jews were showing up in the United States and messing up what it meant to be Jewish. And oh, so, so they were and, actually going after other Jews at the time. Certainly. And they're not alone in that. I don't I mean, again, that we, we don't have a great historical memory in the United States. We have these sort of canned histories, but and often the history of, of U.S. Jewry is thought of as like, well, there was, um, you know, people came over between the 1880s and the 1920s from Eastern Europe. And those were the, and they did the socialism and the labor movement and struggled. But actually, there was uh, there was a lot going on before that. The the um, the Anti Defamation League came out of an effort to repress those folks. And 
not just to repress them, not in a, they didn't think of it as necessarily like we're gonna, I mean, they certainly were anti-left and, and wanted to contain the movements that were rising up out of Jewish immigration. But there was also a sort of paternalistic sense that we need to like shape these people and deracialize them and make them acceptable. But the suppression of politics, the, the suppression of like ethnic politics and the representation of of political viewpoints that were not capitalist and Western, um, not settler, is always what they've been sort of focused on suppressing. So when the opportunity of Zionism arose, they that it made sense to them, right? It wasn't they weren't interested in Israel as an agricultural or socialist project or as a liberation project or as a post Holocaust project. Even it was uh, at the moment when. Um, when Israel became uh, evident, when it was became evident that Israel could be a power, a Western power, that the Jewish organizations in the United States who had come from that elite class became interested in Zionism. So it's their politics are absolutely Orientalist. They have horrible. Um, their history is even more. Uh, like more, it makes it more visible. They horrible Orientalist, racist perceptions of Arabs, um, the the idea that Arab Americans would politically organize was absolutely unacceptable to them and they denounced it as like foreign influence and oil money, absolutely echoing the anti-Semitic um, claims that anybody who is advocating, anybody who's advocating for a Jewish ethnic politics is more loyal to Israel than to the United States. Absolutely the same arguments just used against Arabs and Muslims. I mean, but they, it seems, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I just want to say that that's a Cold War stuff, right? It's like Islamophobia, mm -hmm. anti-Muslim racism, anti-Arab racism has its roots in the Cold War in the sort of East versus West politics that defined the U.S. at that time and, and proceed now. And the Anti-Defamation League really has to be understood in those terms as like a Western liberal anti-communist organization in order to make sense. So you're basically, I mean, are you saying that in a way, the ADL is just an extension of the state or elements of the state, um, imperial elements of, and that's why they've gained such prominence. Um, I think that's a big, big reason why they gained such prominence. There, there are, of course, multiple reasons. One of them is that the ADL was formed already from a set of um, of leaders who were part of the political and upper economic class. The U.S. as a as a nation state is absolutely uh, doesn't you know it has a political class that's related to corporate wealth um, and whiteness. So, sure, they started there. They continued there. The ADL, the structure. Some are asked about the structure of the ADL, and one aspect of it is that it has um, both a sort of professional leadership and also what it, they have long called a lay leadership, which means like a board of great you know figures prominent figures in the community and in the jewish studies literature the organizations that formed at that time to advocate for jewish rights jewish interests at that time have operated on what's called the great men theory which is yeah. uh, just the idea that rather than having people organize themselves rather you know no protests in the street right like that's disorderly um, let's just have our high-powered friends go meet with the other high-powered people and they'll sort it out between them. So, you know, same, same. 
Yeah, I don't remember really too many ADL um, street protests uh, <laughs> no, or never. ADL signs. Um, I mean, <laughs> they work behind the scenes. And it's okay. You also mentioned before in your writings that, you know, the ADL tries to, in a way, monopolize or control anti-Semitic education and anti-bias curriculum, um, whether that's at the school level or even within law enforcement. Um, how have they kind of coined themselves as that? And, and I mean, do you see that there's a problem with their, whether it's the definition of anti-Semitism or that they become the go-to organization that defines those things? Sure, there. I mean, it's not weird for uh, organizations to who who want to claim representation of an issue to try and you know bound everybody else out. So yes, the ADL um, has a huge footprint in what they call anti-bias education, um, and they are part of a, a larger movement to. Um, I don't know. It's it's a movement that on the one hand is about like making sure there's Holocaust education in schools, which is like hard to object to. People should know about the Holocaust. On the other hand, it sets up a kind of um, dynamic where the education about the Holocaust sort of stands alone and is not in not connected to other forms of racism or in some cases is um, is framed as like the only the only genocide like everything else doesn't doesn't count as much right mm -hmm. um some of the research that i did that's in the boston review article that you point to um looks at how the adl began its role in uh, in, San, in the bay area schools and it's it began it was sort of feeling its way into that space in the mid 80s and it began by assembling a group of leaders from different communities who that had suffered discrimination in various ways. So it had there were Asian Americans and there was some black representation and some queer representation. Um, and the Arab Americans had to muscle their way in. <laughs> but they mm -hmm. were as usual, yeah. Yeah. Um to get a seat at the table. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't they weren't invited, but the other organizations who were part of the conversation demanded it. And the the result after like a year or so of doing this work together was that the the Japanese and the Armenian groups um, that were in the in that sort of confabulation uh, were like, how is it that the the internment Japanese internment only gets like a sentence in this curriculum that's been produced and the Armenian genocide is basically dismissed, which is uh, something that the ADL was sort of insistent on for a long time until quite recently. Um, and yet the Nazi Holocaust is sort of elevated and and made the centerpiece of this education. It just feels racist. So we have this piece of curriculum that's supposed to be anti-racist, but the way that it privileges a discussion of the Holocaust is actually itself turns out to be racist and exclusionary. And then the question of why was it doing that um, appeared to be rooted in the um, an effort to push back on the pro-Palestine politics that were happening all around in the Bay Area. There was a great deal of organizing mm. in support. So that was a real reason they were actually doing all of this to to police everybody on on that issue. 
I yes, I mean I think it was one of the reasons. I think also it's just the sort of framing of Holocaust education by Zionist organizations as like it is sort of purpose built to make sure that the that the Holocaust as an icon of um of Jewish oppression, which it certainly is, gets kind of mapped onto the present. Like unless we unless unless Israel another Holocaust. Like that's the equation that we're supposed to make. And education I want to turn I want to turn it over to Summer, but one thing just came into my mind is why have you focused so much of your um, academic work and research on the Anti-Defamation League? Um, you know, did I, did they oh harm God. you at some point? Do you just, or is it like, what's your, I don't want to call it obsession because it's not, yeah. but no. you're writing a book about them. Why are you doing that? And what's your interest in them? <laughs> I am not obsessed with the ADL. I wish I did not have to talk about the ADL anymore. <laughs> I really wish that. I'm writing a book about it because that was the subject of my dissertation research. Um, I also found in the course of doing this work, and as you saw from the Boston Review article, that there's just almost no information about this organization, which is really at the center of U.S. political life. And there are so many myths about it and it gets, you know, it's being used for harm. I mean, I am also, I'm Jewish and my, you know, half my family lives in Israel and I have a personal stake in this. I, I mm. just object to being instrumentalized in this way and feel like I, you know, I feel compelled to do it. But also I was interested in the ADL because it was, I'm also queer and the, the ADL's representation um of queer rights and Jewish rights kind of together always interested me and troubled me. I have there, I won't go into it here, but the way that um, the way that the gay marriage movement sort of framed queer rights uh, without any reference to race or class just felt really similar to the way that the ADL framed its calls for protections of protections of Jews, protections against anti-Semitism without being willing to talk about the ways that many Jews are white and that many Jews have class privilege. Uh, so I just wanted to look at the connections, but I'm, I'm not obsessed with the ADL and I hope to someday just never <laughs> mention them again. <laughs> uh, if you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 uh, FM. Ahmed and I are talking to Professor Gelman who teaches at Sarah Lawrence College and she's writing a book about um, a famous um, Jewish organization called uh, the Anti-Defamation League. I think one of the reasons that upsets me about them, uh, uh, Emma, is the fact that they, if you if you talk about Palestinian rights, they managed on several occasions to label students or activists as anti-Semitic just for the fact that he or she are talking about Palestinian rights. They're not talking about being against Israel or getting rid of it or anything. But also they went as far as saying, if you criticize ADL, you are an anti-Semite. So for instance, they can't tell you and me and Ahmed anti-Semitic because we are Semites. But this is very dangerous. What their power and their budget and their uh, access to government and also, and this is uh, something I would like you to clarify, if they really uh, train FBI uh, and they are very much involved with the FBI. 
The two examples happened, if you can talk about them more recent, so our listeners, maybe you bring them into uh, this time and their power. What they did to an American professor, African-American professor, uh, Mark Limon Hell, I think his name, who was, uh, I think, a contributor to CNN, and they just managed in less than a few hours to kick him out of there. And then Ilhan Omar a member of Congress. Can you can you address this issue, this, this dangerous issue that if they can just label anyone anti-Semitic, and this is really very, very scary in, in the US and in Europe to label somebody, especially a professor or a media person, or like in the case of Ilhan Omar. Can you address these issues, please? Sure, yes, absolutely. So the the ADL absolutely um, has a long history of attacking students and student movements, um, particularly those that are focused on um, Palestine, but also even more broadly, anti-racist student movements and leftist student movements. And this, again, is uh, part of the Cold War framing um, that these that objecting to the way that power is organized and held is somehow is a threat to the state, right? Is a threat to law and order. And of course, um, we have to have political freedom to do these, uh, to, you know, to express ourselves and to try and advocate for things to be different. But, but all of us have in our minds at some point, like there's, you know, there's a point where it's sort of orderly and productive. And then there's a point where it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's extreme. And the ADL's line on what it deems extreme is very, very, very far to the right. So it seems essentially anybody who is challenging the, the way that things are currently arranged um, is deemed extreme. There is some new interesting research on the extremism industry um, in the same way as we've coined, you know, we've heard the terminology of like the Islamophobia industry, where um, it sort of feeds itself the, without, uh, it doesn't have a particularly clear definition, but it gets, the idea of extremism gets named in law enforcement policy. And then there's, um, it gets uh, designated as like incidents of extremism are something that law enforcement should count. And then suddenly there's like, oh, spikes in extremist incidents because we've started counting them. So the, I would say that to the extent that that we have seen the rise of something called an extremism industry, particularly after 2001, when the, the politics of the United States turned to sort of paranoia and security rather than trying to problem solve our relationship with the world, that the ADL has been at the heart of that. And um, it's, again, it comes partly from the ADL's interest in Israel, which certainly is a beneficiary of security, securitization, both in terms of tech and in terms of uh, militarization, like the, the, the idea that um, anybody who opposes Israel must now be defended against because it makes them sort of illiberal or whatever. Um, but it's partly that, and it's also partly the ADL's inherent longstanding anti-leftism and, and interest in preserving Western dominance. I mean, those sound kind of like conspiratorial terms, but like that's that's just Cold War stuff. So the policing of student groups has been very central to that because campuses are places of important political organizing and uh, and undoing the kinds of simple stories 
that we're sold about why we need to be policed, why we need police, why we, or, you know, I don't mean just police, but like sort of restriction, why we need surveillance and why we should be afraid. The ADL, despite its claims to be an anti-racist organization, has almost always targeted student organizers, campus organizers, and faculty who are people of color or who are Jewish, because those are the folks who are primarily involved in, in those challenges to, to repressive order. It's called the Palestine exception to free speech in many places. I, I would actually direct folks' attention to um, Palestine Legal's um, research report. It's called the Palestine exception to free speech that looks at how not only the ADL, but also other groups that have uh, have cropped up that are kind of modeled on the ADL are doing that repression. Calling think, students, uh, sorry uh, to interrupt you. I think one of them is called the Canary Mission that uh, tries, even after a student graduates, if the student was active in college with Palestinian cause, they would go, if, if the person, I, there is one particular case of a lawyer who they went after his law firm and, and said he is anti-Semitic. This person was of Pakistani descent or born in the U.S. And uh, they tr they tried to kick him out of his uh, good paying job in New York in, a, in some uh, firm. Very, very dangerous. And they are very well oiled. I mean, uh, again, the Canary Mission is financed by some very filthy billionaire. Yes. billionaire. And they... They they are like they do parties. They go to the Republican and Democratic parties. Uh, they raise funds for candidates. I think you mentioned in your article how much uh, ADL uh, contributes. This is very scary to democracy and to um, to the lives of students. Uh, at least that's my point of view. That's what how I see it. So yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... Uh, no, I, I think it's important to talk about Canary Mission. And I actually, um, you know, it's been interesting, the role of billionaires or, you know, major funders in, in doing this work and um, sort of propagating the model of the ADL, which seems to work so well, which is to say, well, here's an here's an organization that's a civil rights organization because it's concerned with anti-Semitism and stopping anti-Semitism. But in fact, what it's doing is using charges of anti-Semitism to shut down anti-racist work or Palestine solidarity work or anti-Islamophobia um, work. So I was actually in conversation with a journalist um, for a Jewish newspaper who had been, who had also noticed this. And he had, he decided that he was going to make a list of, um, of these organizations as they popped up. And he sent me his list. And since 2012, and 2012, there were a few that started um, one of them is the Amha Initiative, which is sort of a like one or two person shop that does an enormous amount of of damage and pursues uh, like legal harassment against uh, faculty and students and organizations that speak out about Palestine. Another one is uh, StopAntiSemitism.org. Um, there's Stand With Us, which was founded as the Israel Emergency Alliance, but now. Uh, goes by stand with us as a, I think, as a way of sort of gesturing to its, um, sort of like it's the idea that it's about racism and anti-Semitism. In the past, uh, I don't know, in the past since 2012, they really ramped up, starting around 19 or 2019. Uh, there's a list of 40 organizations that have started that do anti-anti-Semitism work. Almost all of, not every single one, but almost all of them are right-wing organizations. Oh my gosh! So, what happened with the uh, Elon and um, 
Uh, I mean, in the past two days, but uh, and the guy, I think his name is uh, Jonathan Greenblatt. Uh, he's uh, maybe the president or the director. Uh, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about him, but like what prompted all this? I read somewhere uh, that, and I am and what he did to Twitter, and I don't pay him my $8 uh, for the blue sign or anything. I don't support him in any way or shape or form. And I personally think that he is a bit uh, uh, too much to the right. But I read, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the claim is that some white supremacists are the ones who started this hashtag uh, on Twitter, ban uh, the ADL. Right. Can you like verify exactly how did all this start? So yes, ban the ADL is in fact a right-wing white supremacist hashtag. Um, and yes, Elon Musk uh, liked the, the ban the ADL post was trending and Musk liked it, um, which, you know, matters, right? Because he's indicating uh, his positions. And we know that Musk is a racist, like this is not news <laughs> to us, right? Yeah. Um, so the ADL uh, and other organizations did launch a campaign, which I don't terribly know, you know, I don't know so much about, but uh, they at least actually two campaigns at different times to try and have Twitter's advertisers withdraw from Twitter because of all of the racist and racist content and white nationalist content and attacks that were happening on Twitter, which again is like, great, let's do that. And if you were a, you know, a small organization of trying to protect, you know, black Twitter from attacks, then you, the ADL said, let's do this together. You might have a hard time saying no, because it's such a powerful, um, a powerful voice. And the ADL has been on this uh, digital um, anti-racism stuff for a while and actually had even a council, it built a center in Silicon Valley to try and be in communication with uh, social media. Again, on the theory that it was dealing with white nationalism and racism, but also of course, uh, the result was to censor social media accounts reporting out on Israeli colonialism and ethnic cleansing from Palestine, as we saw when Sheikh Jarrah was under uh, attack um, was it last year, almost a year and a half ago, and people who were reporting out had their accounts shut down as hate speech, uh, as incitement. So the ADL has been involved in this sphere with social media um, officials. And I mean, you know, maybe they did have good success in getting the Twitter's advertisers to pull out, but that is obviously not what is causing Twitter to take right now. Yeah, that's what I thought is too much exaggeration from his part to say that, like, no matter how influential Jonathan is and his uh, group, but I don't think they are the, <clears throat> the ones who made uh, Twitter uh, lose $60 billion. Right, right. Because but, I, 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 my feed has thousands of advertisers. Yes, it's nothing but advertisers, I know. <laughs> um, so for, for what Musk did was he liked this, um, this tweet that said ban the ADL and then, um, you know, got into a, there was a meeting, I, I, there was a meeting between Jonathan Greenblatt, who is indeed the CEO of the ADL. And I think Linda Yaccarino, who is Twitter slash X, uh, I don't know, executive. Um, and, uh, and then 
there were these these attacks um, of right wing users started to attack the ADL uh, to demand that it be banned on the basis that it was quashing free speech or whatever, which is also a right wing talking point. Um, for the ADL, this is actually very helpful to them because there's, you know, Twitter's, it's unlikely that Elon Musk is going to sue them. If it does, that'll be another, a, a whole other interesting conversation. But they, the response is, of course, because Musk is being pitted against the ADL, that the ADL is perceived as like the left progressive anti-racist hero fighting Musk the racist. And that's, you know, it's, of course, not true. It's really, it's a difficult, um, it's difficult to put any nuance into media coverage, especially uh, because the ADL has pointed, which the ADL has so much authority, right? And it has pointed to all these organizations that are actually doing anti-racist work and called them extremists. So if you're a, the media, then you, and you want to report on this, are you going to report, are you going to take the information from extremists? Are you going to take the information from the ADL, which is trusted? So it's really amplifying the ADL's story. Yeah, well, we're almost out of time. Um, I want to thank uh, Professor Gelman for joining us. Um, she is a professor at um, Sarah Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence Univer uh, College. Sorry about that. I blanked out. It was not a Mitch McConnell moment. <laughs> um, and also, I want to remind our listeners that the opinions shared by our guests are their own opinions. And, in, you know, in case Elon Musk tries to sue, sue us for defamation uh, as well. Uh, but I just found it so interesting. And also, just you mentioned Canary Mission earlier. They do kind of similar work as the ADL, but they're not owned or the same organization as the ADL, correct? They're not? They're not. Nobody knew for a long time who was Canary Mission. Um, it turns mm -hmm. out it was funded by Adam Milstein, I think, who's the, a, a right-wing billionaire. It's not connected to, to the ADL officially, but um, it's worth noting that all of the or many of the organizations that do this work that are that claim to be Jewish representational organizations, despite the many objections that we have um, to that and who also work on Israel, actually do have coordinating organizations. There's the Council of Presidents of Jewish organizations, et cetera. So who knows? Right. Where... It's part of the same ecosystem. And yeah. um, I mean, I, you know, I've always found that the work of the ADL is dangerous and is documented and it's um, spying on organizations and people. And they've actually lost lawsuits before, uh, you know, due to defamation and other things. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd love to have you back on. Um, you know, of course, we're going to get some accusations that what we said today is anti-Semitism, our criticism of the ADL or uh, Zionist organizations when it comes to Israel has nothing to do with the Jewish faith or the Jewish community, which we love and respect. And um, it's not anti-Semitic to call out occupation and other factors of uh, racism. But we're out of time. Um, this is WMNF Tampa, NPR News is next, and we'll be here at the same time, same place on WMNF uh, a week from today, Thursday, every Thursday at 12. And um, NPR, like I said before, is uh, 